Well, it has been quite a long time, but this is episode number 95 of the Development Hill podcast. Uh, I'm uh, talking to Ed, actually for the first time in quite a long time. We stayed in touch during the hiatus, but mostly it's been tech stuff. But I'm actually glad that we are back and talking about stuff again. And I find it ironic. This The podcast first started off as two old cranky guys complaining about the state of software and web development. And almost six years later, we're still complaining about the state uh, of web development. So yeah, pretty much as I tell my kids, sometimes the only thing that's changed is the calendar. So, Mm -hmm. so we're back. And, uh, just a reminder for those listening, uh, these days we rely on Patreon, uh, to funnel money into our pockets to help pay for hosting costs and editing software and all that stuff. So if you're a big fan of the podcast, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash dev hell. You can sign up at whatever level you want, starting with a dollar, just because you like what we're doing. For two bucks per episode, you can get your uh, email um, read on the air, which nobody ever took us up on. So whatever. And for five dollars, for five dollars an episode, uh, we're happy to get Ed to read some sort of advertisement on your behalf. Ironically, Ed, I ran into Chance Garcia when I was down in Atlanta for oh, PHP yeah. Tech, uh, and it was the weirdest thing where like he's talking to me. Hey, how's it going? And, and like, he's like super friendly. And I've told a few of my other friends who do conference stuff that sometimes for someone like me, who's been to so many events, it's very, very weird because I get people who know me, but I don't know who they are. And so they're yeah. talking, they're talking to me with a level of familiarity that I wouldn't say makes me uncomfortable, but is awkward. Cause I'm like, dude, I have no idea who you are and you're talking to me like we're, like best friends almost. And so then right. when Chance mentioned the podcast, it's like, oh my God, I finally figured out who you are. So I'm sure Chance will be listening. Chance, it was great to run into you um, at Tech down in Atlanta. Um, and, you know, sorry again for forgetting who you were and getting all creeped out and weirded out by it. So yeah. sorry, man, that's how it is. So uh, so we are back. So I don't know, Ed, what do, you, do we want to go into our our first topic, which was complaining about web stuff, or did you want to talk about what we've been, or more importantly, what you've been up to since, uh, since we last shared an episode with the world? Oh, I think it probably makes sense to talk about what we've both been up to. All right. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had, you know, I think a lot of people probably know that, you know, one way or another that I've had a pretty rough uh, past year or so. And I was in a really, to, to, to try to make it, uh, a shorter, uh, story. I was in a really bad place in terms of anxiety and depression, had some, had some pretty significant life events going on in the family. And, uh, I was really in pretty bad shape and I went and got, uh, I, I did some inpatient treatment for a little while um, and then have, you know, did some did some outpatient stuff for a while and started a new job and kind of started over. And an important part of that was just sort of like tearing everything down that I was like doing all these things that I was doing and sort of letting go of all that stuff and just focusing on myself. And so I'm sort of very, very gradually 
uh, getting back into things as I as work starts to get you know, I start to remember that I I'm halfway decent at doing certain things at work and that I you know maybe I'm actually a competent developer and uh, and find and you know find the time and the strength to sort of to sort of carry on with that and so things are things are going pretty good now um, I'm doing a lot less than I used to just in terms of sort of side things and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but that I think is good for me because that's what I've needed to do. Um, but so the podcast was something that, you know, obviously was one of those things and it was important that I not, you know, for me, it was just important that I not have something sort of hanging over me that I felt like I had to do and stuff like that, or until a certain time that I felt I was, I was really capable of doing it again and to, to, to commit to some level of that. And so that's kind of, you know, that's why we're here now. And, uh, it's just taken a while for me to get there. Uh, I just, I, w I was in, you know, some, some, uh, had some bad times and, and I, kind of had to, I, I had to work through those things, uh, first and, and that that's, so that's what was going on with me. Um, and so now my days are pretty much just working, coming home and hanging out with my kid on the weekends and, and, and that's about it. So I've really stripped back on stuff, but, uh, but you know, all in all things have, have, have been doing pretty good. So uh, the past probably month or two, things have really sort of turned around and I've been doing better. So, yeah, that's that's what's been going on with me. What about you, Chris? Well, uh, I guess let me think about what I did after the during the hiatus. So I did end up uh, traveling a little bit. I went out to California, um, recorded a uh, I wrote a course for the fine folks at LinkedIn and Linda. Um, shout out to Stephanie Evans for hooking me up with that stuff where I just did a video course to show people um how they can go about testing legacy PHP code, how the strategies are different, how you have to use the tools differently. And just, I had a good time writing that course. And uh, I find um, doing courses and doing workshops, which I continue to do. Um, I did one in May at PHP Tech, just the all-day um, testing workshop. Very similar to, if you've never been to one of my workshops, it was very, very similar. Um, I'm going to be doing the same thing coming up in um towards the end of July in Detroit at PHP Detroit, which I'm driving to because um, it's about two hours away. Uh, so I did that stuff. So I flew out to California. My oldest daughter came with me. So we kind of hung out at, um, in the evenings after I, uh, uh, after I finished recording. Um, it was through Linda, who is owned by LinkedIn. They have some uh, offices in a beautiful part of California, just near Santa Barbara. So I got to explore some of that. I did tech, um, and, you know, not to the same extent that Ed pulled back, but, um, you know, I'm kind of slowing down, too. Now that I'm out here living in the wilderness, um, I'm not quite the wilderness, but but now that it's a pain to get to the airport, it, it really, like, made me refocus and think about what I wanted to do. And I've worked, I worked pretty hard for the past 10 years, you know, building the brand of the book and speaking to all these conferences, and I just kind of felt like, it was time for me to kind of slow down and reevaluate all this effort I'm putting into it. Um, because there's like kind of different things I want to do now. And part of what I want to do is just like, now that I have a place where I can like literally relax and the pool and the hot tub and very quiet surroundings. And it's, um, it felt like it was, the time was right to take on 
less commitments. And and part of this too was a decision um, about air travel to just, uh, I have definitely noticed um, in the past, past couple of years, last two years, especially a distinct meanness to air travel that's creeping in. The um, seats are getting smaller. Again, the amount of space you have um, is getting smaller and they're really, really starting to charge a lot of money all the upgrades. Um, when I flew in January of this year, that ended a streak of 36 straight months I had gotten on a plane to go mm-hmm. somewhere for work or for a conference. And I just I just did not want to do that um, so much anymore. Right. So yeah, so part of the deal too was um, for me to get into a plane and go somewhere for other than work, um, conference organizers are going to have to start paying for a business class ticket. And that has naturally resulted in fewer opportunities for me to speak, which I think is okay. I mean, I mean, Ed, you remember how this was for me for years. I was the only person talking about testing stuff at conferences. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now there are so many other people doing it. So I definitely don't feel that pressure anymore to go to a conference and be that person and be the one promoting all the testing stuff. Testing is almost, I think in the PHP community, almost completely mainstream. Every significantly popular uh, um, framework or library has an extensive test suite. There's lots and lots of people other than myself who have contributed to the documentation out there to teach people how to do these things. There's lots more books. There's lots more blog posts. So I don't feel like there's the same pressure to introduce people to the topic anymore. So mm-hmm. now I'm just trying to do different things. These days I'm actually concentrating on a couple of talks um, and maybe a course for the fine folks at Linux because I am happy to take their money uh, about tools that are complementary to the testing thing. I want to talk to people about um, code sniffers and build servers and things like Travis and static code analysis and just all these tools that really, really complement what you're trying to do, trying to build a, a working environment where testing is a key critical part of it. So that part I'm enjoying exploring. Like I'm doing a talk about that um, in July mm-hmm. in Detroit. And I'm finding there's lots of parallels to that sort of stuff in my work at Mozilla, where I'm not really doing any web development. I'm using Python day in, day out, but I'm using a very narrow subset of it where I'm just basically doing a lot of testing of APIs. So it's not quite the same thing as the test-centric stuff I used to do, but I'm finding there are lots of complementary tools out there that are related to the test uh, testing stuff that are are very interesting, and I think people need to know more about them. We see lots of examples now of like automated code formatting tools, so there's no more arguments over where do brackets go and and, and, um, indenting and all that stuff. Right. Uh, as you know from your work with Python these days, PEP8 is out there to enforce coding standards on the way okay. things are supposed to look and how many um, how many spaces uh, after colons and how many uh, blank lines between um, function calls and stuff like that. So I, I, I find that stuff interesting because I kind of feel like I've talked so much about the testing stuff. Um, it's time for me just so I can stay like intellectually interested in the world of programming that I need to branch out and start drawing uh, other tools in and showing people how, how like, I think at this point, having uh, a testing framework is not enough to save you anymore, to have a good high quality code base where you can do frequent releases 
with uh, a high level of confidence. There's a lot of other tools you need to start pulling in so that the people who are doing the work can concentrate on doing a good job and not having to remember the code formatting and static analysis and all that stuff. Right. Yeah. That's the, that's the non-agreement agreement I've gotten used to from you, Ed, where you're just, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, sounds mm, good. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good, wasn't listening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, man, don't care. All right, move on. Uh, so, so, like I was saying at the beginning, yes, we started off this podcast way back when, uh, pissing and moaning about the state of PHP, and uh, I'm still doing PHP stuff because I'm still contributing to open um, CFP, but um, you've moved on, and that's your uh, new place, Del Mar, I believe is the name of it. Yeah, um, you're doing Python work. So d- d- before this, we were, you were saying uh, you wanted to talk a bit about what's going on with building web stuff and like how has it changed? How do you think it's changed in the last four or five years since you know we first started talking about all this web stuff? Well, I th- I feel like the the things that I've seen is I don't think there's been a a, a huge change necessarily in the way that backend stuff is done. Except that there, there's still there's a po- more of a possibility now of doing things where you route everything to like some sort of like AWS Lambda or some sort of like store. I guess they're sort of like I, I was going to say stored procedures. I mean, not like a database, but they're kind of like that, I guess. Um, to do backend work um, and sort of abstracting away a lot of that stuff. Uh, so that the, uh, the, you know, a lot, a lot of those things have kind of changed. So I, I think the actual part of like coding backend stuff for the most part hasn't changed a lot, particularly if you were more API driven, I think backends have become more sort of focused on APIs and specifically doing that. And so there's certainly, um, I think there's less and less uh, server-side rendering and sort of like building the front end on the back end is done a lot less. Um, It still is done, but it's just done less, right? Uh, I think the thing that, that, and I think this is a a trend that I don't think is great, but I also think that it's not going to change anytime soon necessarily, is that I think the... I think the web and front end as a, and the, specifically when we're talking about front end development as sort of a target and a platform and a stack that's turned into something that used to be pretty simple and now has become something that really like it requires a compiler basically. Right. I mean, it, maybe it's transpiling and maybe it's doing, you know, code munging and insertion and moving things around and, translating stuff into this and that but let's just be simple and call it even if it's not technically accurate it's really just like a big compiler like webpack is with all of its things and stuff that it does is really just a compiler and it turns code that you write and you know stuff that you format out in in html and css stuff that you write and maybe you don't write it in css maybe you write some other you know, variant that compiles to CSS. And then you write, you might write your HTML and some other thing that compiles to HTML. And then you write your JavaScript and maybe you write it in some, 
variant that's either you know javascript that isn't supported on some browsers and you're using some features that aren't supported on some browsers or maybe you're writing in some completely different language as a superset of javascript or a you know a variant of javascript like typescript or things like that and you're really and you're compiling it into javascript right and i think it's interesting that uh it's i think the big thing is that it's sort of introduced these um like there's a lot of complex tooling out there now and that sort of changed everything that the tool the tooling has gotten more and more complex and i think that that has made it harder and less accessible for people you know for people to sort of get involved in front end stuff um like you have to i mean the it's it's on the level of like understanding well how does how do compilers work and things like that um understanding all the things that are happening and there's a lot of people who have who've done coding and that stuff that you know most stuff with actual compilers nowadays is really completely abstracted away you know if you're doing um you know, native app development, or you're doing .NET development, or you're doing Java development, or you're doing those kinds of things, for the most part, all of those kinds of things are abstracted away. And even, you know, uh, bytecode compiling for PHP or, or you know, something similar for Python or, or, you know, whatever language it might be, all of that stuff is abstracted away. And I think it's, we're sort of just not at that point yet um with with the javascript at all um uh stack that we've gotten to a point where we can really ab abstract that stuff away completely um there's still tons and tons of options and tons and tons of configuration stuff and for most people they don't i i would say that you know there aren't you're you're a really advanced person uh in terms of a very specific technical uh skill if you understand well the ins and outs of doing of say building things with with webpack and Babel or you know why things work the way they do and stuff like that it doesn't mean you know we all have strengths and, and weaknesses in different areas and it doesn't mean it's like a useless strength or a useless you know or or so you know not knowing that is a huge gigantic weakness uh but I think that it's the case that eventually you're going to have to see things get easier and easier. And that sort of compilation step is going to have to be smooth and, and sort of brought together and, and, and abstracted away. So it's not something you think about. Like, I don't really, you know, understand how compilers work. Some people do. That's awesome that they do. Um, I don't. And I can I've still gotten through life as a developer and done pretty OK at it. Um, and I think that uh, it's going to be better when we're better at that. Um, I'm starting to see some some sort of steps in that. And mostly I see I, I sort of pay more attention to the uh, the Vue.js community just because that tends to be the, the front end sort of glue that I I tend to move towards or have advocated for or paid more attention to and um 
they've done some different things where they sort of like they they build a CLI tool that it, or it, or initially it had sort of like these templates that you could check out of GitHub that would sort of like set up a project for you, right? And and set up Webpack the way you probably needed it to be and stuff like that for sort of some common patterns. And you saw other things that build upon that, that, you know, you could you could pull things out of for different things that were based on Vue.js for similar sort of similar approaches to it. Um, but for like front end frameworks, because um, Vue.js really isn't a framework, it's more like a library that that's so a view model library. Um, but then there's sort of, there's sort of like these presentation frameworks that are larger, like Vuetify or Onsen UI or things like that. Um, and then now there's a new version of Vue CLI, which is in release candidate that it doesn't, it's, you can still use the templates with it, but it, they've abstracted away a lot of the con, like specific webpack configuration and stuff like that. And, um, so it's sort of simpler and a little more straightforward, um, to do that. And I, I, it's my hope that people keep pushing in that direction because I think that we hit really a tipping point of extreme complexity with stacks like that, that were, were really unappealing and weren't very enjoyable to work with. In my opinion, I think some people would enjoy that, but I think a lot of people don't. They just want to build stuff. They're not necessarily super interested in 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 that, those kinds of details. Um, and I think it's going to be the case that I, you know, it's my hope that over, you know, over time that that stuff stabilizes and, and becomes more abstracted away. However, I do think it's the case that it's probably it's not going to get so non-complex or uncomplex or what have, or so simple that you don't need those sort of these kind of compilation steps anymore. I think that you're sort of past that now. Um, what it's going to be is that it's going to be easier. You know, it's gonna, they're going to make it more accessible. Uh, they're going to remove steps so that you can, you can, you can still build things without having to think about that. But I think you're going to see separation too, so that, you know, when you build something with with Vue, it's already kind of like this, that you have to build it this way. And that, you know, if you build if you're using a different system, you have to build it. You know, you're using React, you build it a different way. And the way you write code is very different in React than if you do if it in Vue, even though they, they share some similarities. Uh, there's a lot of big differences in it, too. And there could be a lot of big differences in terms of the stacks and the the you know what you how it compiles and what does it do with that stuff and and th those ecosystems i think are gonna be to some extent independent um but i think they are going to get simpler i think it's just it, there's this level of complexity now to it that that i don't think you're ever going to get away from uh you know building your code and compiling your code and, and doing all that stuff. I just don't think that's going to go away. Even when you get to a point where everybody has, you know, browsers that support, uh, you know, import statements and, and things like that. I just think it's not, I, I just think they're still going to have these compilation steps because there's too many people who want to do different stuff with it. Um, and don't, and apparently don't want to write, sort of like plain, you know, ECMAScript or, or, or what have you and, and, and sort of write things in a straight, in a straightforward way that doesn't require build tools. 
So I don't know. That's kind of where I think it is right now. I've just been thinking about that a lot and wonder what, wonder, wonder if you have thought or maybe, re, you know, listeners have thoughts about that. I'd be interested to hear what they have to think. Here, here's an interesting thought that came to me while you were talking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder as, uh, as we move on the front end stuff towards where basically everything's kind of a DSL now, right? We have a DSL and things are being compiled down to, um, hopefully performant JavaScript by Webpack or whatever tool. I wonder if that kind of, uh, I don't know if homogeny is the right word, but conformity towards transpiling means that we're going to get to a point where in terms of like resource usage and speed of JavaScript, we're getting to a point where that won't matter anymore. So the user experience will swing back to being the thing that is important because that's the thing that I, I always wonder about because I do almost no JavaScript and I've done pretty much no JavaScript for the entirety of my career. I've been basically a backend developer, which I think is very, very unique uh, for our industry after, mm-hmm. 20, after 20 years to still basically be doing just stuff that runs on a server and we're not really caring about uh, the browser. I, I agree with you that I see a trend towards backend uh, code being more API-centric with um, JavaScript front-end or even a mobile front-end in some cases, calling some API, returning some values that, that doesn't. Right. But I'm just wondering if we're, like, we're moving towards all these tools are compiling so there, there won't be that many differences in terms of performance and capability. So instead now we're going to go back, perhaps swing, swing the pendulum back towards building good user experiences. Cause I still see after all this time, and I talked about this when I did my um, workshop, I had a very lengthy 10 minute rant on this topic about how we've, we've allowed, we've allowed the standard for quality to become really, really super low for what gets released and used by people. It's more and more noticeable as software dominates more and more of the world around us. Uh, I just think about on any given day, how many um, basically computerized systems I have to interact with. And we're talking about even just something like I, uh, I go to a parking lot and have to pay, uh, uh, pay for parking somewhere. We're talking to a computer. There's, there's my people's cars today are essentially computers on wheels. Uh, you know, some ridiculous high percentage of people, like 90% of people carry um, phones around with them, which are essentially computers. So software is everywhere. And it seems like the quality of the software that we're having to use just keeps getting shittier and shittier, despite all these advances on the, um, on the developers' side of, of the fence. The, experience, the experiences for the users of the software seems, I don't know, maybe you don't agree with me, but the quality of the stuff I have to interact with on a daily basis just seems to be going down. It's worse. It doesn't work as expected. Uh, in fact, you're becoming... it's getting to the point where I almost expect all my interactions with embedded software and other systems to be shitty. I go into these negotiations with machines about parking and paying for things and booking flights and all this stuff with trepidation, convinced that in the middle of what is an important, uh, supposed to be an important experience for me to complete a task, the system's going to crap out and not work as expected, but mm. on the other side, for the people who are building these things, you know, there's lots of awesome toys for us to play with. But the problem is, they still feel like the 
they're, they're toys still, right? We're doing all these neat things. We're using CSS preprocessors and we're compacting our JavaScript and we're still using transpilers. And I think the way that web applications are being built has actually changed. I agree with your earlier thing, moving more towards APIs on the back end and then writing uh, code that runs in the browser to do the other stuff. But I just, uh, my experiences with dealing with software out in the world, they've just gotten shitty. And I think... As the tools have gotten more interesting for developers and I've allowed them to do more interesting things, the rest of the world is having to suffer with the output because it's too much half-finished stuff, too many things being built by people who don't actually use the thing that they're building. And um, that kind of worries me because we become more and more reliant. And you know, as the trend goes towards more and more automation being involved in day-to-day tasks, when shit goes wrong, if there's no human there anymore that you can yell at to try to get this fixed, there's going to be a, a lot of really bad outcomes for people. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I think, uh, I, I mean, I, I think, I don't know if it's gotten worse in terms of the quality of software. What I I do know is that just the reliance on software and, and computers has become, it's obviously become much more uh, you know, much more the case and, or, or pervasive in society. And at the same time that, you know, the complexity is, is super high. And so I, those are all things that don't help you sort of create stable, uh, systems and, and things like that. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I hope that user experiences get better. Uh, I think that, I think there's always a push, for doing things cheaply though. And that gives, that tends to be, I think user experience is the first thing that gets chopped when you're doing things cheaply. Um, it's, you know, it's good enough. Right. And sometimes good enough is there. It's not really accurate, but you know, people put up with it. Right. Yes. That willingness to tolerate the nonsense is what kind of, I mean, I understand it, but I just, when I watch non-technical people interact with, the technical world that's being built around them. It like, it makes me nervous because more and more human interaction is being taken away and it's more and more computer systems we have to deal with and they don't care when there's a problem. Just you're left with situations. uh, I have a problem and I only have a computer I can talk to. And if the computer fucks up, I have no recourse. Um, And the process of unwinding these computer based mistakes, um, seems to make, uh, you know, old school bureaucracies look like uh, a simple one-step process. You know you know what I mean? It's just, I, yeah. again, some of this is just because I'm probably getting old and cranky and dislike interacting with these systems that can't read my mind and instantly do the things <laughs> that I want them to do. But I just, right, yeah. I just can't shake that feeling that we're, we're, we're back in our cell. We're painting ourselves into a little bit of a corner by relying on these systems that are inflexible and uh, and lack the ability to roll things back to a previous state um, mm-hmm. if things go wrong. Not enough people are are building systems with this sort of thought in mind that if there's a mistake, we're going to roll back the mistake. Instead, they apply the mistake and keep on going. And um, that, that stuff worries me. So I, I know we talked about some of the stuff that you found com- complicated uh, or perhaps not so great. What are some things that you've run across recently that you actually like and think are really super interesting? Um, well, let's see. 
I of all the JavaScript framework stuff that I've messed with, I think I still like Vue the best. Vue, uh, when I say that, uh, I think I like Vue the best uh, because I think it's it's relatively speaking simple. Even though I think people keep adding complexity to it, uh, but that's sort of how that works in that in that uh, in that world. Uh, sort of when people are building on top of stuff, this sort of gets more and more complex. But the the base level of it is pretty straightforward and easier, easy to pick up, and I like that. Um, but you know, I've been I I did find myself writing a lot more Python lately, and that has been. Uh, a really a nice experience. Um, I think that that's just an enjoyable process for me. Uh, I recently, you know, built a backend with um, uh, in in Flask and SQL Alchemy, and it's it was just really really nice and clean and straightforward, and it was an enjoyable process for me. So I've really been happy doing stuff in Python. Um, you know, at the place that I'm at, uh, they do a lot of .NET stuff, but also a fair bit of Python stuff. And I think we're going to start doing more Python stuff um, because we think that it's a it's a good good option. And uh, and so you know that that's really been I think the thing that I've been most excited about. And and sort of I you know for a long for a while there I sort of forgot what I enjoyed about or i just couldn't enjoy uh the process of development and and building stuff with python has sort of has sort of re-engaged me again and i've been sort of i've been excited about learning about stuff and and building things again and that's been really cool so those are the things that i i sort of i feel uh pretty good about um you know lately uh which maybe isn't a huge list but that's that's the stuff i've been excited about working on yeah, that's interesting uh, that you're doing all that stuff in Python. Because, I mean, I know when I started working at Mozilla, it was all Python. I had done some Python before, so it, it definitely wasn't like my first exposure um, to Python. But I did find that, you know, once you learn one of these uh, scripting languages that kind of have that Perlish C style syntax to it, it's pretty easy to switch back and forth between PHP and JavaScript and Python and Perl and Ruby um, because a lot of it is just the differences are syntactic sugar, but the structure of the code is it's it's a very familiar structure. We have objects, we have methods acting on the objects, and so that sort of I, I find it pretty easy to wrap my head around that sort of stuff. But uh, like mm-hmm. like like I said, I use. Python, I use PyTest um, all the time. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I found that transition very, very easy. The significant white spacing never caused me issues. I use PyCharm. So shout out to um, JetBrains for creating that. Um, it's PHP Storm. Every, everything that PHP Storm can give me for PHP, I get Python. So all the same intelligent helpers, the ability to set up virtual environments and stuff like that. So I found that transition to be super, super simple. And um, I found that being familiar with PHP meant the Python stuff was going to be easy. And like I said, I'm not doing anything particularly complicated. I'm basically testing APIs these days and writing. So using tools and it's interesting, everything I do is kind of custom because every service 
or backend that I need to talk to has its own unique set of constraints. So uh, lots of artisanal um, testing scripts to do stuff. So uh, yeah, it's interesting that we both end up kind of doing Python stuff. Uh, so in terms of Python, like what are you using for um, for virtual and uh, managing your virtual environments? Virtual env is what you're using most of the time. Yeah, yeah, just that. So nothing too fancy. Um, just the built-in virtual environment stuff uh, that's in Python three. And uh, so I'm not. I guess there's some other stuff out there. Well, I've been using. Yeah. We've been started using pipenv at. Um, oh yeah. Uh, at Mozilla, which is apparently like the Python Software Foundation's preferred uh, tool going forward for managing virtual environments. It's created by our, our, our former guest on our podcast, Kenneth Wrights, who did the oh, yeah. who did the request library. He came up with pipenv along with some help from other folks, um, and I looked into it because it reminded me of um, Composer in that uh, it uses a lock file, so you can very easily mm -hmm. pin your dependencies. And pipenv provides a whole bunch of other um, benefits to it. Um, you know, you can you can create your virtual environments on the fly, and it puts them somewhere else, not in the root of your um, project that you're working on. So you can uh -huh. actually, so if, if, the, if you have a need for it, you can actually share a virtual environment between multiple projects, which is something I'd never seen before with Python virtual environment tools, but I could see there could be times when it's useful. It would allow you, like mm -hmm. if you're working on different versions of the same library, you can just have it in and just have your code in two different places and use the same um, virtual environment to install your dependencies. It also supports the use of um, uh, the .env environment variable standard. Mm -hmm. So if you put files in a .env, if you have stuff in a .env file, when pimp m when pip env uh, creates your virtual environment, it will automatically read everything in those in that uh, file and, and load those values into environment variables. So it's very, very handy if you're trying to do some of that 12 factor application stuff. And we're, mm -hmm. we're using it more and more at Mozilla um, where we will create environment um, files and upload them into Jenkins and, um, Jenkins has a nice capability to uh, encrypt those files so mm. that we can store them with a key and then read them back at runtime. So we can store secrets like login names and passwords and things like that, that we couldn't, that we can't store in version control because yeah. almost everything that I do at Mozilla is open source. So they're in repos all over the place. Um, right. But yeah, you can start you can start putting secrets and other configuration values into a, a .env file, and when pipenv creates your environment for you, it automatically loads them in. So, uh, you know, that's part of the whole thing I was talking about earlier, where I was like getting kind of interested in all these complementary tools with the whole goal of let's create a nice, a nice, uh, easy to use, easily um, replicated environment for doing our work in, and mm -hmm. just just another. Um, you know, pipenv is just another complementary tool. So, um, yeah, I never got into the JavaScript stuff. I know lots of people. I know that Vue.js, uh, I believe, is the preferred front end for folks who do a lot of Laravel work because I know there's yeah. a lot of people who are contributing information on how to use that. Um, so I've seen Vue around, but again, I don't really focus too much on JavaScript stuff. Bleh, JavaScript stuff. It's just all Python and then PHP stuff as I work on. Open CFP on on uh, on Fridays when I when I get a chance here and there, right? Yeah. Um, where do you think do do you think that PHP is uh, still a, a, a where you'd put your bread and butter? Um, 
you know, or do you feel like it's something that, you know, it's eventually going to sort of go the way of like a pearl or something like that, or even a ruby, you know, lately? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I think, I think the rise of JavaScript has complicated that answer because mm-hmm. because you could look at it to build a good to build a good web app experience these days. I think you need three things. You're going to need some JavaScript on the front end to provide that kind of interactivity and user experience that people are expecting because you have so many tools in JavaScript to help you do this sort of stuff. You're going to need something on the back end running on the server to uh, to um, pull data from your chosen data source. So that's like a tripod of things you need to build um, an application, right? You need some Java, you need some front end stuff, you need some back end stuff that's going to talk to um, a data store. So, uh, so I think that kind of it, it really complicates the question of what's the future of PHP. Clearly, PHP is a very these days a very fast and stable um, scripting language, right? For doing web, mm-hmm. stu- web stuff. Yep. If you've been using PHP to do backend stuff, there's really no reason to switch off to something else. Um, just like if you've been building apps with Rails, well, Rails has enough tight integration with other with uh, with JavaScript libraries that you can get your JavaScript fix as well. So I think I th- I, I don't see any reason why PHP will retreat to being like a Perl-like situation any more than Python will or um, or Ruby will. I mean, people hate it, but hate to hear this sort of stuff. But PHP still powers the back end for at least fifty percent of the web. So PHP is here. Right. PHP is here to stay. And and as more and more people pick up the JavaScript skills to go with the um, back end development skills, you'll just literally like I'm just going to pick some JavaScript. A package to use, and I'll pick whatever um, server side scripting language that I'm familiar with, and mm-hmm. then pick and then pick a data store that I think uh, meets the needs of what I'm trying to do. Whether it's a relational database or it's a NoSQL solution or whatever you're looking at, um, people are going to build stuff that way. That tripod's not going to wait. You need the front end, the back end, and a data store. Uh, right. So. PHP, they keep pushing it forward to add things because I think I think what you want is you want a language that's powerful enough that if you need to um, break out of that paradigm of the front end consuming an API on the back end that's talking to a data store, you need that scripting language to have some power, to have some flexibility. And, you know, so I think PHP is still really, really good for that. I mean, I'm always still struck by whenever I see Rasmus Lerdorf give a talk about PHP and he talks about how PHP these days is not what he wanted it to be, but everyone else decided they wanted it to be that way. He still felt like the best way to do things was C++ binaries and PHP is a thin wrapper around all those. And I don't know, maybe Rasmus is right, but, um, but I think PHP and and Ruby and Python, their strength is that they have the power and flexibility to move beyond the uh, formatting data from a database for you to help you solve other problems. Because there's still other stuff that needs to be done. Any uh, any web app these days 
as much as we would like to say to identify say oh that's just a crud app well no that it it isn't that simple anymore there's lots of other functionality that needs uh to work and javascript still has limitations it's running in a little sandbox in the browser and there's still issues about uh file system access and issues mm-hmm. regarding encryption and how do we store secrets that our application needs. Those are things that are still solved really, really well on the server side where the user of the application can't get any access to it. So um, even though these days you can definitely do JavaScript on the front end and JavaScript on the back end, you still need that front end, back end. You're still going to need something that's going to talk to some sort of persistent data store. I don't think that's ever going to go away. That has proven to be um, uh, an architecture, like um, maybe a meta architecture is a good way to describe that. You're always going to have the front, you're always going to have the back, and you're always going to have a data store. And what those three things are really depends on the problem you're starting to solve. But I also think, I think more and more people are coming to the conclusion quicker than they used to that the specifics of what you're using doesn't matter you cannot go wrong by deciding i'm going to master this particular set of javascript tools and this particular set of server-side tools and how they and how to interact with my preferred data store i don't think you can go wrong building up a skill set that way and produce applications that provide value to people who are trying to um, trying to use them so mm-hmm. um could ph could, could i stop doing my stuff at mozilla and go build PHP applications and be okay with it. Yeah, probably. Money's still good. I still have lots of experience in that. I don't think any of that stuff is going away anytime soon. So people who are worried about PHP becoming irrelevant, on the one hand, it is. It is a commoditized scripting language. But at the same time, it is still undergoing heavy development, and the people who are working on it are committed to making it better. And... and um, it's highly visible in a way that Perl isn't. So yeah. that, you know, Perl, don't get me wrong. There are lots of really good Perl hackers out there. And I worked with a whole bunch of them when I worked at Cinecore all those years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Just Perl isn't mainstream, but the fact that it isn't mainstream does not mean that it is not a suitable um, programming language. I mean, I just think people are still pretty tribal, but I think because the speed at, at which we can build things, I think people come to the conclusion uh, that, they need to pick a front end tech, pick a back end tech, pick a data store. I think they're coming to that conclusion um, a lot quicker than they used to. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Um, I think the thing that I sort of worry about with with PHP is how many sort of like new developers you get coming in using it um, versus. and and uh, And when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about sort of like uh, bespoke development, I guess I'd say, or, uh, you know, custom development as opposed to like, Hey, we need to write add-ons for WordPress or, or, or we're going to, you know, I, I need to know the internals of Drupal or things like that and be able to write stuff against those kinds of things. Um, I think that, you know, I think my biggest concern there is that, that, PHP on a whole sort of is has has done really really well in those kinds of environments and building things like Drupal and WordPress and and 
other content management systems and other sort of platforms. Uh, I think because of how easy it is to deploy, I think that right. has had a lot to do with it. Still, still the among the easiest of the programming languages to deploy an app for, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think the concern as I sort of have is is for the PHP generalist who's sort of just just a PHP developer as opposed to is on one of those stacks. I feel like the I don't know. I feel like the maybe the community has gotten smaller for that. Or, you know, maybe yeah, sure. maybe it has. But here's an interesting thought for you, Ed. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. think we can look at a lot of people come into programming using PHP as their tool because of the ease of deployment, because it's very easy to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at some point they have to make a decision about whether they want to continue using PHP. So on the one hand, I think you have what can be accurately described as the um, snob developer who decides that. Uh, because they think other technologies are cool that PHP is now beneath them. So the hype driven developer. So Mm -hmm. they abandon PHP and move on to other backend technologies in whatever language, Ruby, JavaScript, whatever. Right. right. Because to them, PHP isn't cool, even though PHP can solve all the same problems they're trying to solve. They've latched on to popularity as the metric that they want to use. Then, then you have the other people who stick with PHP until PHP until it gets to a point where they can no longer build the things that they want to build with PHP. And I've seen this happen where just PHP itself, the problems they're trying to solve, PHP just isn't well suited to that. And then they move on to technologies that are better suited for what it is they're trying to do. We're talking about things like concurrency or um, command line things. Now, PHP can do all those and can do a lot of them well, but there are definitely categories of problems um, that PHP is not, um, not well suited to solve. It can solve some of them. Yeah. But you're talking about really needing to understand PHP at a much deeper level than most developers. So uh, I think you, uh, I think I also agree that just the plain PHP developer definitely, I hate to use that phrase, definitely a dying breed. You need to uh, have more complementary skills. So like you look at look at me as the PHP mostly PHP developer. So if we want to frame this in terms of making money. Right, which is unfortunately a way a lot of these things have to be judged. You have to look sure. at the you have to look at the value add. So, what's the value add that I have? Well, years and years of experience of development in a wide variety of environments. So, not just like I've only ever done WordPress stuff or only ever done Drupal things. It's like I've been around to help build websites of all sorts of shapes and sizes. So, I have lots of experience at looking at how to turn a uh, take a problem and figure out how to solve it with PHP. Right, but but my other value add is is an understanding of the of testing of the processes of the tools and how do we get teams caring about the code that we're writing and how do we get them to write tests and what are all the tools and what are the complementary tools so you need to have more than just knowledge of php and everyone that i know who is a very experienced developer who is doing lots of work with php is essentially like me and that they have a whole bunch of extra value added skills on top of their knowledge of PHP that allows them to continue to command good money for the problems they're solving and to continue to use PHP. A lot of these people mm-hmm. I know could have easily uh, left the PHP world and go work with other tools. 
but they stick with PHP because not only are they uh, familiar with it, but they have um, programming knowledge at a level that they can manipulate PHP to do what they want to do. And they can also articulate to people who are actually working on the language itself what needs to change. They can provide extremely valuable feedback on, I've been trying to solve this problem, and in order to solve this problem, PHP needs to be able to do X. How can we get PHP to do X? Those conversations are what continue to push PHP forward. And I feel very fortunate to have met lots of people who are trying to do exactly that. And I'm sure people, there are people in other uh, programming language communities who are doing the same thing. Long time, mm-hmm. super competent developers who continue to use the language because they intimately know it and they know what problems the language is really, really good at solving it. And they can also articulate to other people, here's how we're going to solve this problem with PHP. So that's, right. that's kind of how I look at it. I, I agree that these days there's a lot more shit that you need to know than uh, than 10 years ago. Or, and, and of course, way more stuff than what you need to know than when you and I broke into this industry 20 years ago. It's, it's exponentially more now that you have to understand front end, back end, uh, persistent data stores. And then you have to start understanding the environment that all these things are going to run in. We have our own hosts. We have virtual servers. We have, uh, we have AWS. We have uh, Heroku. We have all these other environments that our code needs to run in. And now you introduce people are starting to do Lambda, which is just uh, a nice Amazon wrapper around CGI bin stuff. And that's, I just... I find all this stuff fascinating because I've been working in this industry long enough that I can recognize patterns and I can recognize what people are trying to do. And I and I, I feel fortunate that I'm able to look at something like Lambda and go, oh, I see what they're trying to do here. That's, mm-hmm. very, that's very interesting. And to not, um, and I feel like that gives me a, a deeper insight into how these tools can be used to solve problems. I know like sounds really narcissistic or whatever, but I don't give a shit. It's actually the truth. You and I have been doing this stuff for a very long time. We are highly competent, despite what you might think, Ed. Highly competent (laughs) at what we do. And so it's that depth of knowledge that allows us to keep either adopting PHP as our chosen uh, tool when we're going to try to solve a problem or gives us the ability to use other tools and understand how to solve problems with those tools. Because that's the worst thing to me would would be for someone to say, I'm only ever going to use X. That's so limiting and you have no idea what you are potentially cutting yourself um, out of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, I mean, it just, I, I think that's why, you know, I was able to walk in and, and, and work on things uh, at Del Mar that on technology stacks that I really wasn't that familiar with. Um, but I was still able to build on stuff. I still was able to be like, well, I can see what's going on in this C sharp app. And I could even maybe write a little bit of code to sort of try to do some things. Um, or, you know, we, we have lots of different um, applications written for different clients that are written in different stacks and, and understanding that and just sort of understanding how that stuff generally needs to work is 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 challenging. But I think the experience that you have in just building applications, particularly, you know, in my experience, web applications, that's what I know, um, mostly carries over between everything. So, uh, yeah. I think that that's really the key and it, it's a matter of just of, of then taking that experience and applying it to different areas. Um, it can take a little bit to, you know, there's going to be a learning curve, obviously, but it's never it's it's something that you're entirely capable of uh, doing. 
I, I think the one lesson for our listeners I think should really take away from the discussion we've just been having is that the the people who are going to be using the things that you build don't care what you build it with unless you're creating a tool for other developers. The developers are the only people who actually care what something is built with, but your average user of a, of a software system they don't care. They don't. They don't need to know, and it shouldn't matter to them. I can't imagine someone saying, "Well, I'm not going to use this app because the backend is Java, is written in Node." I mean, that sort of thinking is no. like tribal, and it's just it's ridiculous. This idea that the idea that it matters what you build something in. It's all just marketing, and it's all just hype. And like I said, you can build a very successful career still now and make lots of money and solve lots of problems with people by using something as generic as Vue.js on your front end mm-hmm. and and PHP, whatever the latest version of PHP is, as the back end to generate, uh, to, to talk to a MySQL database and format output as JSON and do a, a, some other work that the JavaScript front end just can't do for you. Right. And you can solve lots of problems for people. And I tell people, I encourage, you need to think about I'm solving problems. Because once you get into the mindset of solving problems, that's where the real satisfaction and to be perfectly blunt, the real money starts showing up. Oh yeah. You can oh, be, oh, yeah, that's, that's the thing I try to tell uh, other programmers with a lot less experience than me. We're here to solve problems. Uh, and if you get a reputation for solving problems, you will, you'll be able to uh, have the Chris Harchus plan of every year working a little bit less and making a lot more money. So don't worry. The, the, pe- the people who use your stuff, unless you're building tools for other developers, they do not care what you built it with. If you're just trying to suck other people in to work with you, okay, then maybe the tools matter. But the, at the end of the day, like the classic thing when I tweeted many, many months ago, and this got picked up, where I talked about people are, are as much as people make fun of PHP, Facebook was built on PHP. And mm-hmm. of course, now they've modified it and they have their own programming language and they've rewritten parts of it. But the fact of the matter is the average user of Facebook could care could not care less about what Facebook is built in. And PHP was the tool that let them get there. So herp derpin on PHP is just, it's stupid and it's infantile. And um, I, I don't see the value in bashing other programming languages. Or even these days, even bashing um, uh, frameworks and tools within a programming language. It's so counterproductive and it literally doesn't matter. And if you find you've, if you find you've wrapped your identity around something that you did not yourself create, um, you're in deep trouble. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that was pretty good. That was good, um, man. What else do you want to talk about? Here, let's add a little thing to it. So what's the latest, I will start off the latest tech toy that I bought. Cause you and I both oh, know sure. we like, like buying shit. The last cool bit of oh, tech yeah. I bought was an ergonomic keyboard. So I was trying, I'm trying to get out in front of any type of wrist and finger related injuries, carpal tunnel, all that stuff related to yeah. typing. Cause I noticed once in a while, um, I was starting to feel it a little bit in my, le- in my right wrist, not to the point where like I couldn't work, but I was like, I feel like I want to get out in front. So I bought, uh, I have it right in front of me an advantage to, uh, LF kinesis keyboard. So, um, I'll add a, I'll, we'll have a link to the show notes if people want to see it look like so it's this big, it's actually a lot lighter than I thought it would be, but it's such an alien thing to to try and re, in some ways I have to kind of reteach myself to type because yeah. my hands are in a much different position. Whereas like on my old Bluetooth keyboard, 
Um, I think when I type, my thumbs were almost touching when I would type. Now they're mm. now they are a good six to eight inches apart, and a bunch of keys that I was used to tapping with my um, right pinky or my left pinky are now moved into a position where they're accessed with my thumb. And some of the more common keys used for programming uh, are moved elsewhere. Braces are in, um, brackets are in a different position. The equals key has moved from being my right pinky to be my left pinky. So I've had this for a couple months now. Um, and I think for like regular text typing, so doing emails and stuff, I think my speed typing wise is pretty much back to where it used to be. But for programming, yeah. it's still a little bit of hunting. And especially when I have to do control, uh, the control key is in a different position. So it's been interesting trying to rewire my brain uh, to type on a different keyboard. So I just like, not that I was having problems, but I wanted to get out in front of of it. I didn't I didn't want it to be a problem because as a programmer, yeah. the day I can't type anymore, my career as a programmer is done. And if I have to well, go yeah. if I fuck up my hands to the point where I have to hunt and peck type, then um I can't do my job anymore. And uh I will either have to be start managing people, which does not appeal to me, or I will just have to retire and or find another job where I can um where I can make the same money but not typing on a keyboard. So um Kinesis LF uh, advantage too. So I will post a link. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah, advantage to LF. It's a USB keyboard. So I used to have that really cool mechanical Bluetooth mm-hmm. keyboard. I sold that to somebody online, uh, a writer who was saying they're having some problems with a wrist and they, and they were advised to switch to a mechanical keyboard. I have no idea why, but um, yeah. they switched to that. So I was able to get rid of that. But that is the latest toy that I bought. Have you, have you talked to them lately? Is their career over? No, I think they're. I'm. They they emailed me to let me know they got the keyboard and that the keyboard works great. So uh, uh, I okay. view I view that my job there is done. Your job is done. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yep. Um, yeah, I guess the it's 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 been a while, but I think the thing that I that was sort of revelatory for me was I uh, started working at a place and um, it used uh they use widescreen monitors, like not sort of the 16 by nine that we're used to, but like a 21 by nine, um, which you see in some gaming setups and things like that. Um, but I use that and was like, this is great. It's awesome because you can fit so much more stuff on a single screen. And I'm not a big fan of like double, like two monitors that I'd, I'd rather have one big monitor. And so, I so when I started at Del Mar, I was like, you know, they're asking you what equipment to buy. And I was like, these are the things I'd like to get. And I'd like to get this kind of a monitor. And they're like, okay, we can do that. And so I have some Dell variant that I could probably look up. I can't remember exactly what it is. And but it's a 21 by nine inch uh, uh, aspect ratio and nine, not nine inch, uh, 21 by nine aspect ratio. And it's very wide and you can fit lots of stuff on the screen and it's really great because it just gives you way more space to work with. And that is, I, that has really helped. I think it really has improved my, I feel like it's helped my productivity. I can, you know, I can comfortably fit, um, two wide, um, screens of pie charm or other editors or things like that, and then still have room to have, 
you know, almost a full browser or, wow. you know, uh, or, or at least have room on the side where I can pop back and forth if I need to. Um, you know, it doesn't fill up that whole screen to do that. And it's really nice. It's just, it, and it really helps. You know, I really think it's been a, a productivity improver. So I've been very happy with it. Cool. I have a Dell 24. Uh, what the heck is the actual thing here? If I go look at it, uh, about this Mac and then explains. Oh, oh, sorry. I have, sorry. I have the Dell 27 a P twenty seven fifteen Q display, so that's like thirty eight four. That's maximum resolution, which I can't even see. Is uh, thirty eight forty by twenty one sixty. I'm pretty sure it's just your standard sixteen nine. But uh, but that's right. cool that you've gotten to the widescreen display. It's very very cool. I don't think I've worked with one. I've never been a multi monitor person for a long time. I just worked off of my laptop screen, and then it was only in the last year and a last couple of years that I bought an external monitor so my laptop runs closed with an external keyboard plugged in and uh, now nice external 27 inch monitor and um a wireless mouse so um that's that's why i buy small 13 inch computers that make it look like uh i'm like a gigantic human typing away on a little kid's toy when people see me at conferences i always get that comment how can you work on a laptop that small because i'm like 99 percent of the time it's closed and plugged into external devices so it doesn't really yeah right yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I actually have a, the, my work computer is just a 13 inch MacBook Pro with the, the two, it doesn't have the bar on it or the LC, the LED bar. It just mm-hmm. has regular function keys and has two USB ports. And so I'm really fine with it. Sometimes there's a little bit of a jump between it, but you know, I don't, it's just having that big external monitor really, really helps. And so I'm, I'm pretty much on that. Um, so yeah, it's been, that I'm I'm in the same boat. It, it doesn't doesn't affect me. Uh, I'm I'm happy having a smaller smaller thing that I can carry into into meetings and stuff like that, and take notes on and and do stuff like that. Or a 15 would probably be a little bit more of a a challenge for me. Yeah, I had some good conversations with some folks about. Uh, still feeling kind of unhappy about the Mac situation where Apple seems to no longer care anymore. So I, I wonder if they will ever build another. Uh, quote unquote pro laptop for people. I suspect future Mac laptops are basically going to be devices for building iOS apps. Is how I think this is seems to be going. So I'm starting to think about like my laptop is a year and a half old now. So in another year and a half, when the warranty is up, because of course I get Apple Care because I actually have found it super useful. Um, mm-hmm. That when my laptop is off of warranty, I'm gonna have to decide. Um, do I want to go the Microsoft route or do I want to go the Linux route? Cause I ran Linux for many years before I got my first Mac um, laptop. So right. I can give some, I still have some time 18 months before I have to make that decision. Uh, I will say based on kind of what I do these days, the only thing that I, that appears to be difficult that I need to do on a regular basis or want to do more on a regular basis is the recording of videos on, mm-hmm. Linux, on Linux, it still seems super shady to get it to work that you want compared to what a Mac or um, a Windows box um, will let you do. But uh, I was A-plus about Microsoft stuff and then last couple of days, some, I don't know how f- close our listeners follow politics. For the love of God, don't follow it as closely as I do because it makes me too anxious these days. Um, right. 
Microsoft doing some work for the government that's making a lot of people unhappy. So again, that's kind of a black mark. Do I, by purchasing a Windows machine, I'm saying, hey, it doesn't matter the shit that they're So um, I don't know. The future's still up in the air. I think like for my day-to-day job, I could do it all on Linux. Mm-hmm. I could do it all on Linux. I'm, I'm in the command line all day long anyway, and I just need Firefox browser to check things out and make sure they work. I do use Chrome for a few things because, you know, Google keeps fucking around with Google Docs support in Firefox. Every once in a while, they just get petty and break it, and we have to go back to using Chrome. So um, right. I think I could do 99, 99% of what I want to do on a Linux uh, box with a Linux-based laptop. And there's some nice ones out there. The System76 ones look really nice. Um, and, mm-hmm. and other people are like, oh, you can just get like a Dell or, or um, a God, what is it, Lenovo, um, and put Linux on it, you should be okay. So, uh, yeah, just, uh, again, as, as you watch that horizon, I just get nervous when I see companies taking shit away from me that um, I really liked, and I think um, kind of disappointed in how Apple, uh, I mean, I get it, Apple's making way more money off phones, right, and iPads right. and watches. I understand why they feel they can just kind of, start really treating their laptops and other non-mobile computing devices as uh, as niche products that they don't need to devote as much attention to. But I will be sad if Macs become just simply a thing that you need to use to build iOS devices because I don't see how they could... I think the big issue is building an iOS device that's powerful enough that you can build apps for it, apps for it on itself. Right, it's sort of inception level of stuff. It seems like these mobile devices don't have enough horsepower um, to do that sort of work, to run the editor and have a programming environment and all that stuff. It seems they're still far out from from what I've seen. Still pretty far out from figuring out how to do that. So I, I just get cranky about the state of tools because Apple had such a great run, and they and now when uh, Microsoft has pounced on that opportunity where their their own offerings are uh, for laptops are very much aimed at developers these days. Mm-hmm. The work they're pouring into um, the Windows subsystem um, for Linux, uh, last time I used it, it looked pretty good. People keep telling me it gets better and better. So for the first time in a long time, there's alternatives for people to do Mac stuff and aren't necessarily happy with you know, operating system isn't nearly as good as it is anymore. Apple spies on you a ton. I have a friend who's into computer security, and oh my god, the long threads that he sent me where he was yelling at me via um, iMessage about shit that he figured out um, on on how Apple is spying on people who are using their operating system. Oh, um, geez. Yeah, just that sort of stuff is like, it kind of makes me sometimes want to look at what's going to give me the most control of my environment, uh, my day-to-day work, and environment in terms of like people spying not spying on me kind of ironically seems that linux is is the best way to do it because there can't be as much spyware floating around in the linux world as there is in both apple and um and on windows operating systems certainly people aren't going to be baking that type of uh phone home to keep an eye on you stuff that is so prevalent from the other um commercial operating system yeah oh it's hard out there, Ed, for people who give a shit. This has always been the this has always been the biggest problem. When you start caring about this stuff, you get very unhappy. As you see you can see trends, you can start to extrapolate and you go like none of this is good. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, and caring I, and, is, yeah. is the mistake. Yeah. And, uh, and also, like, for a brief moment, I'm like, could I do my work on a Chromebook and just SSH into remote servers and do my work on there? And the yeah. answer is, yeah, but then I couldn't do any of this other stuff. I don't think I could do the podcast stuff. I don't think I could record videos. I don't right. think I could do any of that stuff that I want to do for side stuff that I could do on a Chromebook. I mean, maybe it's changed, and maybe someone who listens to this podcast point me in the right direction. But I have a Toshiba Chromebook that I bought like a year and a half ago and it's configured and I've used it a few times and it's kind of plasticky and not built very well, but yeah. you know, I can SSH into stuff and I can run Google Chrome on there and I can definitely check out stuff, but um, you know, I can definitely do a lot of my day-to-day work on it, but it's like all the, um, all the extra stuff that gives me joy, I would not be able to do on that device anymore. So that's, mm-hmm. so yeah, if anyone listening has some cool tips on, Chromebook as a daily developer device. Uh, I would love to see some. I haven't looked at it in a while. I would love to see some of that stuff just to see, is it viable? Am I dreaming? Um, will I reluctantly go back to Mac? Will I buy an Apple laptop or will I go complete neckbeard and go back to using Linux and then piss and moan that my drivers don't work? Hmm. Yeah, Exactly. So, uh, Ed, I'm assuming you're still uh, not venturing um, out of your home to go to conferences for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'm not. I I, I just am, I'm not uh, interested in doing that right now. Maybe it will in the future. We'll see. But, right. Yeah. So for me, uh, we'll make notes in here. Upcoming appearances, because uh, I always love to meet the people who listen yeah. to the podcast. I will be at PHP Detroit. Uh, July 25th, uh, 26th, 27th. I put down the 28th, but that's the Sunday when I head back. Um, uh, and you may be interested in this, Ed. I'm going to mm. be speaking at our old friend PJ Haggerty's conference down in Buffalo in September. Oh, um, awesome. I will be at Code Days. Uh, Mozilla very graciously uh, agreed to um, not only cover my hotel so I can go down there, um, mm-hmm. they are also going to be... Uh, Providing some uh, money to pay for some nice diversity tickets, so mm-hmm. uh, people from underrepresented minorities um, can go to this. What should be a very awesome event. I'm going to be doing basically the same version of the talk I'm going to be doing um, at PHP Detroit, um, except this one is called um, "Your Testing Framework Won't Save You." But it's a little bit about testing framework plus all the plus how you need more than just the testing framework you need the right. complementary tools and i talk about how they all fit together and why i really believe people need to start thinking stuff it's nice that everyone's testing but there's still way more work to do oh yeah for sure so uh anything else you want to plug no i think we're good oh also thank you to everyone else that uh, everyone that came up and talked to me um when i was at php tech where i manned the osmi booth um, oh yeah. Along with Joe Ferguson. It was great to talk to lots of people about their experiences and uh, help raise uh, awareness of what uh, OSMI is, is trying to do. So um, thank you again to everyone who came up and talked to me. So I think we've reached the end of another fantastic episode of the Development Hill podcast. <laughs> Nothing has changed. You can still find everything to do with this podcast, including all the old episodes. If you haven't listened to everything, um, you can find it at devhell.info. I think we're still available via iTunes. If you're on iTunes, please rate it. Let us know that you're uh, still into what we're doing. If you wish to support the podcast, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash devhell. Uh, your contribution can be as little as a dollar an episode. So you can also find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. You can find me on Twitter as grumpy programmer without the U. 
and find Edis Funkatron with you. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you soon, and hopefully it won't be six months. Good night, Fernando.